everyone, and welcome to another episode of Two Dedicated Attorneys. My name is Mike Gibb, and I run AccountsRecovery.net, and I'm super excited to be part of this podcast. Our two great experts, Kelly Nepper-Stevens from True Accord and Nicole Strickler from Messer Strickler, are here with us again to offer their perspectives on important compliance-related topics for the credit and collection industry. The objective is for Kelly and Nicole to work out the often competing considerations of an in-house counsel versus an outside defense counsel. Kelly currently serves as a vice president of legal and compliance at True Accord, and Nicole serves as a partner at Messer Strickler. Kelly, Nicole, great to have you back. Great to be working with you again today. As always, I'm looking forward to today's discussion. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Mike. We're excited to, uh, to talk about our uh, intended topic today, Article 3 Standing. Yay. Right, Kelly? Yes, we're very <laughs> excited um, to talk about this. Um, I wanted to have this conversation again because there's a new case out of the Seventh Circuit that I think is very important for folks in the industry. And there was a lot of talk after the Spokio case came down from the Supreme Court about whether or not this is really going to be a defense that we can use. And we've watched the circuits kind of handle the case differently. And now with the Seventh Circuit case directly regarding an FDCPA uh, lawsuit, I think uh, it's worth talking about again and thinking about in the context of how it can be effectively used to uh, defend uh, these, these uh, you know, uh, sort of errors that occur that fall under this strict liability statute when the consumer has absolutely no articulable harm as a result of the conduct of the agency. So I think it's it's important too because you know not only does it address Spokio but it also addresses specifically 1692GA and we've seen a ton of litigation around 1692GA whether the language of your uh, dispute or your your validation notice needs to specifically state that in order to exercise your rights, it has to be in writing. Um, those cases based upon Graziano, I know Kelly and I, uh, one of our earlier podcasts, touched on those cases. So I think this case is particularly important because I think it's very applicable to specifically cases under 1592, I'm sorry, 1692GA um, specifically. And to consider that, we can go into the facts of Casillas a little bit, which is the case, Casillas versus Madison Avenue Associates. Yes, this before case we came go down, there, I want to make sure that we give the background on the like legal theory. So basically, the Constitution requires that a plaintiff who brings a lawsuit has standing to bring that lawsuit. And the elements of standing require that a plaintiff have an injury in fact, so that that's where the harm comes from, this injury that has happened to the plaintiff. And that injury is traceable to the conduct of the defendant. And it's something that can be fixed by the actual lawsuit finding in favor of the plaintiff. So the plaintiff was harmed, uh, there was an injury in fact, and it's traceable to the conduct of the defendant uh, in a way that the lawsuit can 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 resolve it. So there there are the elements of standing. So you know 
the theory is, uh, and that came out of Spokio, is that if you don't have harm, if there's no injury in fact, a plaintiff cannot bring their lawsuit. They don't have standing to bring the suit. That's the background. And I think, right. And I think the reason courts have struggled with that definition is that um, there's something called informational injury, right? So Congress has this power to create uh, laws that are there to redress injuries and, you know, they create standards that are intended to avoid these, these harms. But Congress Congress's authority, so to speak, to address harms is not um, ultimate and unlimited. So, you know, they can't just make a law that says anything that they wanted to say, essentially. Um, and I think what courts have struggled with, particularly, is situations where Congress has made a law that has required, you know, certain disclosures to be made to a consumer um, and, you know, in cases where those disclosures were not made or were made but in an inadequate way, does that confer Article 3 standing to enable a litigant to, uh, to sue and to find redress? And that's exactly what happened in Casillas. Um, in Casillas, you dealt specifically with uh, a, a validation notice or lack thereof, a lack of a proper validation notice. Uh, sent to a consumer. And um, as we all know, 1692GA requires that uh, within five days of the initial communication or in your initial communication, you provide certain information to a consumer. Um, and part of that information um, requires that you are to give uh, information about how they can dispute or request validation of the debt. Now, the facts of Casillas are actually pretty simple. Um, Madison Avenue Associates, which was the debt collector, sent the notice, and the notice did not make clear that um, in order to request validation um, or the name and address of the original creditor, that that request needed to be in writing. And, um, you know, the, the court... The, the the consumer sued and said, yeah, I got this notice and it did not make clear to me that um, the request needed to be in writing for me to trigger these particular rights. And so thus they have violated the act and I should get damages. Um, and the district court actually dismissed the action finding that there was no standing and it went up on appeal. Um, and at, at that point, the court had to go through an analysis to determine whether or not Casillas had standing to assert this claim. And I, I think this was, it was interesting because what happened here was it wasn't on a motion to dismiss. It was actually after discovery had taken place. And I think there were certain facts here that came out that really affected the court's decision on whether or not the plaintiff had standing. Uh, one of those was that the consumer really had no intent to dispute the debt or challenge the debt whatsoever. Uh, the consumer really had no issue with the debt itself. And the court said, essentially under those circumstances, while you know, the, the collector had failed to notify the plaintiff that um, they had to dispute the debts in writing in order to trigger certain protections. 
um, Casillas didn't allege that they tried or any intention of trying to contact the debt collector to verify the debt. And under those facts, um, the the consumer simply did not have standing to assert uh, a violation of 1692G. So, Kelly, what do you think about um, the court's conclusion here about standing? Uh, I think it's awesome. And, uh, <laughs> well, only because, you know, since the court is saying that, and I think uh, my favorite line is the first line in the case, which I am turning to now uh, to read to everyone, um, where, you know, the court says the bottom line of our opinion can be succinctly stated, no harm, no foul. Awesome, right? So she doesn't have standing to bring her case and the fact that they didn't include the in writing requirement uh, means that uh, since she never intended to avail herself of those protections and made that clear during her deposition, uh, that she didn't suffer any harm and therefore she doesn't have standing. So they dismissed the case. but. As a result of that, I have several questions about, you know, the appropriate strategy for bringing these because it seems that you're going to have to litigate this issue. You're going to have to have a deposition with the plaintiff where you get to the bottom of whether or not uh, the plaintiff, uh, you know, intended to, uh, you know, do something. Um, and, and as a result of that, like, for example, in the Spokio case, um, the issue was a, was an FCRA violation, uh, for an employment law situation. He, he found something on his credit bureau report and he was applying for a job. Um, and so it was arguable that he had been harmed, uh, you know, if what was on his credit bureau report impacted his ability to get a job. So there in that particular situation, the plaintiff very well might have had harm. The Supreme Court sent it back uh, to California uh, for more information for the courts to figure out, okay, was this guy actually harmed, right? Um, and so I think that it changes your strategy because you're not, it's, this defense cannot be used to quickly get rid of a case, um, you know, for, for, you know, motion to dismiss on the pleadings. You're going to have to go and depose the plaintiff and figure out if there was any harm. And so my question, Nicole, for you is in a class action sort of a case, um, you know, if she didn't have any harm, what about the other members of the class? So if they find a class member that was harmed, then you might be in trouble. Although, can you suggest that, you know, well, appropriate for a class would, because it's an individual and I would say no, because you, the member, the class representative has to be similarly situated to the other members of the class. The plaintiff himself has to be a member of his own class. And if he was not injured and thus has no standing, you know, injury to others is not enough, I think. I think the plaintiff himself or herself must have standing. So, I mean, it's a great strategy to use in these, you know, class action cases, particularly on letters. I think, um, you know, those of us in the defense industry who have spent, you know, countless hours deposing these plaintiffs um, know a couple things, one of which is that, you know, uh, uh, once you actually get them in a deposition, they may have very little understanding of what their claim actually is. And I think using that in the context of a standing argument 
is important because a lot of times um, these consumers really don't have any dispute relative to the debt or really didn't intend to do anything. You know, they just are, have brought these letters to their you know, consumer lawyers, either as a result of intending bankruptcy or, you know, whatever other reason. And the, the lawyer is the one that finds the problem with the letter, right? Not the consumer. So, but I think, Kelly, you made a really good point in that a, probably the most effective strategy in using this argument is going to be on a summary judgment motion when you've actually gone through discovery as opposed to a quick and dirty type of motion to dismiss. Um, I will tell you what I have seen recently is that uh, plaintiffs' counsels have been devoting um, sections of their complaints directed specifically at Article Three standing issues. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like they are anticipating, right? So, and, and they try in there to plead the best they can some type of, you know, what what we refer to as an informational injury. They were denied these rights. I, I think you have to be very careful when you decide to file a motion to dismiss on it. And you have to look at the facts that are pled, you know, in the actual complaint to decide whether you think, hey, I'm going to make this argument now or I'm going to make it later. And I think a strategy comes comes into play too. It is pretty important as to whether the consumer admits that the debt is accurate or correct or, you know, really doesn't doesn't have a problem with the debt itself in in the complaint, right? Mm. It's a it's a it's a tougher argument, I think, and under those circumstances than it would be otherwise where, where, you know, if they're taking no position or whatnot. But you have to make sure basically that there are enough facts that you can get before the judge for, for them to make that determination, I think. So there is a strategy that, that comes into play with it. Well, I think I, a lot of the early, go ahead. I was going to say a lot of the early cases that we saw after Spokio really didn't take the time to develop the record. So that was a problem that came into play. Okay. So um, in terms of strategy, I also wonder, you probably don't want to, because a lot of times, you know, I'm negotiating a couple cases now that have, you know, been filed that are alleging bare procedural violations of, you know, statutory language. And so in negotiating them and trying to get them to dismiss the case or give some menial uh, you know, settlement offer that seems like, okay, I'm willing to pay that as opposed to fight this case, even though, you know, I've done, I feel like I've done nothing wrong or the consumer has not been harmed in any way. Um, I probably don't want to make that argument in negotiations. I don't want to tip off the plaintiff's attorney that this is where I'm going. I instead want to, you know, make the small offer say, okay, listen, I'm going to litigate this case, but to avoid it, this is what I'm going to offer you. And then immediately and as fast as possible, get to that plaintiff's deposition, you know, as soon as possible right. scheduled um, so that you can get in there and talk to the plaintiff and really get to the harm issue without drawing a lot of attention to it at the beginning. Cause you don't want them to sufficiently prep the plaintiff to perhaps you know, invent harm that wasn't actually there in an effort to keep the the lawsuit alive. So that's also the same, the same um, risk you'd have with filing a premature motion to dismiss too. You know, if you're going to put that in front of them, 
sure, they're going to do everything they can <laughs> to the extent they can to get their client to say, oh, yes, I was, I was really much harmed by this because, you know, I decided not to dispute the debt as a result of this language or I was confused and so I was so confused I just gave up or something like that. But I totally agree. This is not, this, this would not be something I would recommend arguing in a pre-suit demand or, you know, if you're, if you're intended to settle the case, I would not give, um, you know, plaintiff's counsel a head up, heads up basically to where this is going to go. All right. So this case came down in the seventh circuit. Yay for. Finally, we did something right. I know. (laughs) What about the other circuits? You know, we have this history of cases where folks moved too early, right? With this defense, didn't Mm -hmm. have the factual record, just moved to dismiss the complaint itself instead of having the deposition of the plaintiff and and moving to dismiss at the summary judgment stage. (laughs) So what, uh, what are our chances of using this defense in other circuits? Well, I can tell you that um, at least in the sixth circuit, they seem to take a bit, um, a little bit of a different approach. The Sixth Circuit in deciding a very, very similar case, which, you know, essentially looked at a 1692G notice and said, yeah, you, you didn't effectively convey those those rights to the consumer or found that there was standing. And their reasoning was there was a material uh, risk of harm uh, to the consumer in being denied those statutory rights and said that risk of harm was so great that um, it did, in fact, constitute standing. Um, Now, I wonder whether the record was as adequately established as it was in the Casillas case for them to make that decision. Interestingly, in the Casillas case, they recognized the Sixth Sixth Circuit case, which is Macy versus GC Services, and said um, that, uh, that, you know, they, they disagree with the Sixth Circuit ultimately, but they distinguished it saying, well, that may be true that there was a material risk of harm, but the plaintiff is the one that must suffer the issue, the, the, the injury and there was no material great harm to the consumer because again they didn't have any dispute relative to the debt and they had no intention to dispute it so it's something that the sixth circuit hasn't considered i feel like there's room there to take that seventh circuit case and even argue it in a case in the sixth circuit and try to distinguish the facts with um you know if you had a better developed factual situation. So I wouldn't say it's over in the Sixth Circuit, but it's probably an uphill battle for you there. Um, while contrarily... We, go, ahead. go ahead. No, no, let's just say oh, while I'm, we've been having this conversation, I was actually doing a, a search uh, for sort of Spokio cases, and I did come across another case in the Sixth Circuit. Um, this is back from 2018. It's Hagee v. Demers. And basically what they ruled there was that a bare procedural violation of the FDCPA does not rise to meet Article 3 standing. Now, it's not really, it's not really related to necessarily to a validation notice. I think in that case, uh, uh, the let, there was a collection letter that said that the, pl- uh, the plaintiff did not have to pay the remaining balance on a defaulted loan, 
but didn't the letter didn't say the communication was being sent on behalf of a debt collector, and they sued. Ah. And in that case, the the appeals court ruled be, just because they didn't say it was coming from a debt collector didn't mean that they suffered an injury. Therefore, uh, couldn't couldn't proceed with the suit. Yeah, so I just wanted to mention that other Sixth Circuit case because you, that's the that, that that happened to be what you were talking about. That's awesome. Yeah, no, Circuit. I just that gives us even a little more hope. Yeah, it covers Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, Tennessee. So uh, it sounds like it turns on the facts, and you have to develop a factual record. And the best way to do that is very quietly by a fast deposition of the plaintiff. Like always, you got it. You got it. Well, excellent. Well, I'm glad we've uh, we've narrowed that down and, and ended up with a pretty, you know, pretty concrete piece of actionable advice for everybody. Of course, you know, this is this isn't meant to be legal advice, and everybody sort of must uh, must follow their own legal counsel and their own advice in in each case. But I do think that that's a great way to end this episode. Uh, Nicole Kelly, thank you so much for again for participating in this ed- this episode of two dedicated attorneys. Look forward to having another conversation with you soon on another important topic. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this two episode. This episode, sorry, of two dedicated attorneys. We'll be back soon. Take care.